Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian. And this podcast would be so much easier if I was wearing underwear. <laughs> I guess that's... Uh, that's, I see. I thought you were going to do a, an impression of, of of the filmmaker slash star of this movie, but you switched it up with someone else from the film. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's got, what got you it. keep us on our toes, Jason. I like it. Got to keep the surprises coming, you know. So, oh yeah. When a woman just tells you, like, "Hey, watch me do my thigh exercises to get rid of my cellulite," which at the time was not a common term, and no nobody seemed to know what it was, and then. As you watched her, she told you it would be easier if she was wearing underwear. It's like she's giving you a green light for something, bro. She sure is. What's happening there? <laughs> well, in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we're talking about the films of 1987. And we are here at our documentary pick, which is Ross McElwee's Sherman's March, his quest for love, kind of, I guess. Um, including the woman who does the cellulite exercises and is not wearing any underwear. Well, not just a quest for love. As you know, the kind of uh, subtitle is a meditation on the possibility of romantic love in the South during an era of nuclear weapons proliferation. So it's a meditation on that and uh, a, a somewhat of an attempt to uh, to go over the history of William Tecumseh Sherman's March to the Sea. Yeah, theoretically, that is the movie that Ross McElwee set out to make and that briefly he sort of teases a traditional version of that at the beginning of this film before he gets sidetracked. And of course, being sidetracked is really what makes this film entertaining and fascinating, but he does periodically come back to tracing the route of Sherman's actual march and you can learn a little bit about William Tecumseh Sherman from watching this film. Yeah. Did you know he was a failed businessman? Couldn't get the lumber business going, Josh? I mean, I know that now because of watching this movie. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, we we picked this film as our 1987 documentary, but it could have been a 1985 or 1986 pick if we got to those years. Because like, I think when we talked about Les Blank and his film uh, Garlic is as Good as Ten Mothers. In this era, documentaries, you know, now I think a Ross McElwee film or a film like this would get some kind of streaming release to everyone immediately. But this was a much more niche market for this kind of stuff. And these movies would trickle out via playing at film festivals and on college campuses and on public television and so on before they actually got to a wide release. And this film did eventually get a theatrical release from first-run features. I'm not sure exactly when that was, but it had won the Grand Jury Prize at the 1987 Sundance Film Festival, which I think was kind of what cemented for us, like, okay, we can think of this as a 1987 film. But prior to playing Sundance, it had had small releases in certain cities. It had played at other film festivals. Um, McElwee himself was a professor at Harvard, so it had shown on the campus there. The, you know, the first review that I found from 1985 or the first coverage is from the Boston Globe. So it, it kind of permeated the uh, you know, art house culture over a period of several years. 
And I read a quote that McElwee said it was like the largest grossing uh, film for First Run Pictures for a, a long period of time, which is pretty cool. And he shot it all the way back in 81, Josh. Yeah, he he spent, I think, was it five or seven months or something like that shooting this in 1981 and shot, I think it was something like 25 hours worth of footage that he then had to go through in post-production for the next several years. And in part because he had to keep getting grants for funding for this, he was initially given $9,000 in a grant to go make the film. But even over the course of the movie, you see at one point his his sad little car that keeps breaking down, breaks down, and it's going to cost him $600 to get it fixed. And he says that he doesn't have that money. So presumably that was the grant money that he was spending on things like that. Uh, eventually, via other grants, this movie had a budget of about $75,000. And I couldn't find the the figures for how much it had grossed via first run features, but it did apparently stand as their highest grossing movie for a period of time. I uh, was surprised that he only shot 25 hours worth of footage. That's a pretty good return on, uh, you know, the return rate on putting together the final product. I mean, it's over two and a half hours, this movie. So that's not that much if you think about it. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think like one tenth. Josh, one ten. Nice, nice math there, Jason. We're usually very bad. You at know math. we love math. Yeah, you, you know we love you math. Did a good job awesome with that. I don't remember. I feel like we've talked about this in other documentary episodes about how many hours of footage documentary filmmakers will often shoot just to get their feature length films. And I don't recall like the number of hours maybe that were mentioned in other movies that we talked about. But you, you know, you it's you sound it sounds right that that may be actually it sounds like a lot until you learn how much other documentaries had shot and it's actually not that much. Yeah, that's why I said what I said. Right. No, I'm agreeing with you. But I wonder too though if some of it is and he he also had talked about in some interview like the idea that you know it wasn't necessarily that he set up like today we're shooting this or whatever. He just had the camera with him at all times and I wonder if some of it is like he shot for 10 minutes one time and then he shot for half an hour another time, you know, and so it's a lot of different little bits that kind of add up. Well, he said that he was always ready to shoot the kind of upgrade in technology where he was able to use smaller equipment. He had the camera with him, like you said, ready to go at all times. So it seemed like, you know, he maybe, maybe you're right. But I, I thought like, just even based on what we saw in the movie, I was like, this guy probably shot hundreds of hours of film to get. Right, right. I mean, the other thing is that, of course, now... You, if you were making a film like this or any documentary film, you would just shoot all the time as much as you might want. But another thing that comes up in this in this movie is that he's spending money on film and he will run out of it, you know? So he does have to kind of be careful about what is worth shooting so that he conserves his film for his actual film for what is important to put in the movie. I think that's kind of a charming aspect of it, that he's talking about the process and what's working and what's not working as he's actually doing it. Right. I mean, that's definitely part of his charm. And the whole kind of approach of this film is he's always being very self-reflective about his own creative process. Yeah, this had a total like um, crash and burn type uh, feel like if it went wrong, it could like just go really wrong. But somehow he was able to like make some beautiful chaos out. of it. Yeah, I agree. I feel like this is the kind of thing that maybe if you described it to someone, 
uh, it would sound really annoying. And I mean, I've certainly seen documentaries where it's ostensibly about some subject and then the filmmaker turns it into making it about themselves and it's really awful, but he's just so good at that. Right. And we've talked about Michael Moore and I think Michael Moore, I mean, I think he's very good at what he does. I know you think there's varying results, but yeah, we've all seen documentaries. Like I remember watching one a few years ago about like um, a guy who lived out in Vegas and it was like, he had all these secrets of, uh, Area 51 and working for the government on, you know, alien technology. And it became about like less about him and more about like, okay, so today I got to interview this guy, but I got to take a secret route and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't care what you're doing. I just want to know what he knows about aliens, bro. Right. Yeah. I, I've had that experience. I mean, speaking of a Vegas thing, there was the amazing Jonathan documentary from a few years ago that got a lot of acclaim, but I remember watching that and, and it's like, Oh, I'm really curious about what's going on. What's the deal with amazing Jonathan. And then it shifts and it's about the filmmaker, like things like you said, like, Oh, I got to go do this. And I don't know about this. And what does amazing Jonathan think about me? It's like, I don't care about you, dude. I want to know what's going on with him. So I think it can get really annoying really easily. Right. It can go either way. And, um, dude, this guy pulled it off. He did. Absolutely. He really, really did. And, but I just want to say like, you know, uh, ha having watched some other movies from him after this, like uh, he doesn't always pull it off this well. Yeah, maybe so. Um, I mean, I think I, I maybe enjoyed what else I've seen from him a little more than you did. Although I think we watched different stuff, but yeah, it's a tough thing to pull off. It certainly is. So critics were generally, uh, impressed with this as well. Vincent Canby in the New York Times said, though Mr. McElwee's timing with women is awful, he's a filmmaker anthropologist with a rare appreciation for the eccentric details of our edgy civilization. Sherman's March, which was made in 1981, is a timely memoir of the 80s. At one point, after the departure of one young woman and before the arrival of the next, Mr. McElwee says forlornly, I think I'm devouring myself with the camera. That joke has worn a bit thin by the film's third hour. However, as Mr. McElwee fusses with himself for not getting on with his meditation on Sherman's March, and as the loose ends of his private life accumulate, a wonderfully goofy, pertinent movie comes into focus. Yeah, I know in Dave's letterbox review, which is not at Gopher Jason, he talked about the length of this thing. But we both in our letter box review said like, hey, if this was five hours, I would have watched all five hours. I think like today, like, you know, we always talk about on streaming how like there's a lot of maybe we just talk about this privately, but like a lot of these like six one hour episodes about a documentary that could easily be wrapped up in one two hour documentary. Right. And now here I'm like, dude, give this guy those six hours. Like, I want to watch him every week for an hour. Right. And I think that's another thing that if Ross McElwee was coming out now, you know, was a young filmmaker now, that's what would happen. Probably he would have a streaming TV series where it's just like each episode he goes and, you know, talks about a historical event and how it is somehow connected to his personal life or whatever. From a personal experience, I used to write for this magazine out here and I was a food writer, but every month my column would be about how whatever restaurant or food I was tasting related to me. And I know a lot of people are like, dude, it's not about you. But that was kind of what gave me traction as a writer for that magazine is like it separated me from other food writers in town. And obviously, I was still giving the restaurant their due and their respect, but I was able to personalize it, which, you know, now different outlets, not so much. But I think that was, you can make it really effective if you find a way in. Right. I think that's the thing is that like, 
when you do that well, it's great. And when you do it poorly, it's incredibly annoying. So it's a fine line to walk. Uh, one that uh, I'm sure you succeeded at just as well as Ross McAwee. You just you just have to ask different people who read it. Some people probably say yes, and some people probably say, dude, it's not about you. Right. You and know. I think that's probably a response that, that you might get to this film. I mean, especially, and I don't know, you know, how was this marketed when it was initially released? But if people came to this movie and they really wanted to learn about Sherman's March, they might have been a little mad. I'm guessing that it wasn't marketed as that because like you said, this became like, I guess, somewhat of a cult classic and it played art museums and kind of college campuses. So it was probably like, you know, a documentary like you've never seen before. You think you know what it's about, but you actually have to see it, right? I think it was probably, they definitely didn't lose like the the whimsy of this thing, I would imagine, in the, in the marketing. And that's probably why it became so popular. Right. I would say that's probably the case as well. But just, you know, who knows if someone had just seen the title or whatever. Dave, you got an interview lined up for us with someone from First Run so we can ask. Yeah, Coming there's... up after the break. Someone, <laughs> someone from uh, 1987 who saw this film in the theater and how they perceived it. Um, so Paul Atanasio in the Washington Post was a little more mixed. He said, Ross McElwee is a beguiling amateur, and the virtue of his quirky documentary is that it cuts against the grain, communicating the texture of real life with lazy intimacy, buoyed by McElwee's gentle humor. It's as if the very weakness, the retiring politeness, that has made McElwee such an interesting comic character has also made him a crummy editor of his own film. Like the women who mostly reject him, you don't really want to spend your life with him. United by theme rather than story, Sherman's March doesn't progress, it only deepens. And at epic length, the film's poor technical quality wears you out. But at its best, Sherman's March has a playfulness that can leave you giddy, and a kind of appropriateness that only an approach so obviously inappropriate can find. It may be the historical apogee of the home movie. I think that's fair. Like if, if you don't respond to it, I think those are all fair criticisms of it. But I also um, was, I like the word playfulness because in some of the, I watched two other pieces from him and in one of them, I missed that playfulness very much. And in the other one, it was more there and it, like really that's the difference in these movies. Like so the more they're about him, the better they are. Right. I, I, Yeah. But I do think having a bit of that ballast of like the Sherman's March structure does help that if it's just about him and there's no other kind of driving force, then it could be a little more shapeless. Yeah, 100 percent. Like, yeah, you're right. The parameters or the kind of, uh, you know, in this case, the route he takes or whatever to get there is definitely helps add to the the overall effectiveness of this piece. Right. And I think when he says, Adonazio here is like, oh, you don't want to spend your life with him. I mean, not that I would literally want to spend my life with him or whatever, but part of the appeal here is that even if you feel like this movie in particular is a little too long, like Ross McElwee is great company. You do want to spend as much time with him as you can because he's so ingratiating. He's so charming. Right. You're right. And uh, you got that Paul, quote from Paul Adonazio. I asked Trey Anastasio and he just um, gave me a 47 minute guitar solo as his response. Talking about things that are too long. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the technical quality of this? Like, you know, it's not a big budget film, but I feel like McElwee is also like it's 
you know, it's long, but the editing rhythms of it, like from scene to scene and bit to bit are good. And it's, it's, I don't think it's technically other than the fact that, you know, he's not using great film stock necessarily, or he doesn't have a big crew or whatever. I think he's a, a, an accomplished filmmaker here. I agree. I mean, I think it, again, added to the charm of the piece. And yeah, I like that he talks about how he's filming, what he's filming. You see him holding the camera in shots. Um, it didn't bother me at all. I do think it definitely has a home movie quality, like a kind of curated home movie piece. But like, that's what he's so good at. Like, you mentioned public television, which is, I think, where he worked up in New England in a lot of ways. And like, He's like the best of what public television can offer. Yeah, I mean... And that's not an insult. That's saying how talented he is. Right, absolutely. And I think um, most of his films, you know, got their airings on public television. That's how a lot of people saw them initially. And I think he did get his start as a cameraman on various public TV projects uh, early in his career. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. And this is the kind of almost like stereotype of something that you would have, you know, flipped past on PBS maybe either uh, like in the middle of the afternoon or the middle of the night, you know, in like the 90s or something like that. And then like, what is this? And watch the whole thing. Right. If you say, if you give it five minutes, you're going to end up watching the entire movie. Yes, exactly. Unless you're Paul Adonazio. Yeah, whatever, Paul Adonazio. Go right, shooter. <laughs> so <laughs> Deep cut on those references, oh, yeah. Josh. Uh, finally, Jay Carr in the Boston Globe, which again, this is kind of the earliest coverage of, of him and of this film. He said, McElwee genuflects to Sherman, but like a Tar Heel Woody Allen, he mostly charts his own career as the strikeout king of the Carolinas. Eventually, the film seems a series of variations on loneliness, funny and sad. Sometimes you wish McElwee had edited his two and a half hours of material more rigorously, but if the film sometimes droops, it's never self-pitying. Desultory as Sherman's march sometimes becomes, McElwee sustains its loopy, absurdist tone, reveling in the post-Civil War ironies of the misunderstood Sherman, identifying with them. <sighs> Josh, I do a lot of impressions on this show, but I am, in my mind, trying to work up a Tar Heel Woody Allen, <laughs> and it is it is very tough right now. I don't even know. You know, you got to have the New York Jewishness and that Southern drawl, mm. and it's like, you know, she doesn't even know who Django Reinhardt is. No, no, that was Australian no. somehow, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm trying to combine. It's not there. Maybe by the time we get to the epilogue, I'll have some. All right, you but, work uh, on that. I believe in you. <laughs> I feel like that kind of niche impression is really going to, you know, it'll it'll be good to add to your your stand up act cuz I think so, you know, uh, people people are craving that. So, um but I do like that I do like that description, a Tar Heel Woody Allen. That's kind of fun. Yeah, I other reviews uh had also compared him to Woody Allen, you know, personality-wise and and I can fame documentarian Woody Allen. Right, yeah, obviously not that, but in terms of his you know, he has this slightly nebbishy look. He's got the glasses and he's trying to pick up women. Score with the ladies. Right, exactly. Yeah. And and he has, even though on the one hand, the the through line of this film is basically all these women reject him. They don't just ignore him. Like they eventually reject him, but he he has his charms. Like he succeeds with them first. I was going to say, he doesn't, he rejects a few of them by moving on right. or like, you know, he's in a relationship with one and then he goes back to Boston and then she finds someone else. Right. So it's like, he's not getting rejected all, all over the place. Um, 
you mentioned Les Blank. I thought, uh, and I know he was second camera on some stuff for D.A. Pennebaker, who we've also talked about. Those were the two that I thought with the verite style. And, um, you know, we mentioned Michael Moore here, just kind of inserting himself. But, uh, you know, he's just, he's funny. He's a funny guy. Right. He is, definitely. And yeah, Les Blank, I think, is a good uh, sort of precursor here. But I feel like, you know, a lot of the things that I would think of are more later, you know, uh, filmmakers and works that McAwee has influenced, I feel like something that's what's one of the things that's so great about this film is that he's really doing something that basically no one else was doing or had done at this time. Right. I think that's so cool. And Dave, you again mentioned how to with John Wilson, which I got to watch that show, but um, I, I know people love it and you, you think it's a direct influence on this. Yeah. The other way around, but yes, absolutely. That, that's what I yes, meant. Yes. Yeah. No, Sorry. it's so clear. And, uh, that is one of the best things I've watched this year, and this totally reminded me of it. Yeah, I've I've seen that that reference a lot. So, uh, Jason, this was your introduction to Ross McElwee, right? This was the. I mean, dude, you know. So, I, as you know, I used to work at Blockbuster, and um, on our Adventures in Babysitting episode, we talked about um, the uh, poster, right? I remember this box cover so clearly. This was another one they did a great job with that box cover. And the other thing I remember about it was it was a two-tape rental, Josh, because it, it is so long. <laughs> right. So they, it was a double box rental. But I, and I know you had watched it a while ago and, and had loved it. So it was always something I wanted to watch. But uh, no, my, this was my first uh, McElwee experience. Yeah, I watched it. I don't remember why exactly I had decided to see it. It was a, quite a few years ago now. And I must have read something about it or whatever. And at the time I watched it, I think it was like the only one of his films really available, like on D, you know, it was pre-streaming and it was available on DVD. And I was just absolutely blown away by it. I felt like I'd never really seen a movie like this and absolutely loved it. And his movie Bright Leaves from 2003 came out, you know, so it was right around that time, probably that I first saw Sherman's March or a little before then. And so I watched Bright Leaves when that was out and, and loved that as well. And there weren't other McElwee movies really available to watch at that time. So I hadn't seen any others for a little while. But I've, I've seen uh, his most recent film, Photographic Memory, that I watched a year or two ago, maybe. And, and just before this episode, I also watched Time Indefinite, which is his direct follow-up to Sherman's March. And you watched a couple others as well, right? I watched Backyard, which I know he states is uh, one of the kind of forerunners of this movie. And I really did like that. And the one I was excited about was Six O'Clock News, which is from like 97, where he goes around and he, you know, catches up with all these people who have been on the Six O'Clock News for different horrific events, right? And you think like, oh, this is like a perfect thing for him. And I, even though he does sometimes insert himself, I was like, dude, you know, you missed the fun. You missed yourself in this one. I thought that was was a miss. Yeah, that's disappointing. But I do think like Bright Leaves is great. And part of it is because he does have that structure. And he's reflecting on his family's legacy as like, uh, running tobacco plantation and connecting it to this old Hollywood movie called Bright Leaf that was supposedly inspired by one of his ancestors. So it has that like Sherman's March, the kind of back and forth between some subject matter and his own life and then how it all kind of comes together. Um, so it's been a long time since I saw that, but I, I would very much recommend that. And I like Time Indefinite too, which is totally just about him. There's nothing else in there. It's all just, here's my life for two hours. Yeah. Did you ever see Bright Leaf? No, I didn't. The film that he talks about, I never saw it. I mean, I've seen clips from it in Bright Leaves, but I have not seen it. 
Have you ever seen bright eyes in concert? Not that either. But you can just keep thinking of things that are bright. I'm sure you can keep going with that if you want. <laughs> Remember Rainbow Bright? That was a thing. That was. Dave, had you seen any uh, McAwee films before? I had not. I had never heard of this. Uh, I'd never heard of him. Um, but, you know, back to these kinds of documentaries that kind of go off course and end up being about the filmmaker more. I do tend to love those. I don't know. I, I guess it's an extension of my love of meta stuff. So. Yeah, I mean, I love it too. I think, like I said, when it's done well, it's great. When it's done poorly, it's kind of unbearable, I yeah. think. So it's really a it. all or nothing kind of thing. Anything else on the background of this film you want to talk about, Jason? Uh, I mean, you know, Josh, I mentioned, this is not about the film, but I uh, mentioned that I uh, sometimes write about myself. You, you do the same thing and you're very good at that. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I tend to not do that like within pieces where I'm writing about some other subject, but I have written articles that are specifically about myself doing a particular thing. And uh, that is a uh, very kind of you to say, Jason. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, Grand Jury's Prize for Sundance uh, documentary in 87 and uh, got this good quote from McElwee about the process and what we're talking about. I think this sums it up. It was a new way of making films to eliminate the film crew. You lose some technical polish, but it's much more intimate and less intimidating to your subjects. It allows you to shoot the autonomy and uh, flexibility of a photojournalist. Yeah, I mean, you see at certain points his like microphone that he's using, and obviously his equipment is much more unwieldy than what you would have now, but it's portable enough that he can make a movie like this, whereas maybe just a few years earlier, it might have been too difficult to do that. Yeah, but a few years earlier, we weren't born, so I can't vouch for that. Nor were we making films. <laughs> in, the, uh, in the twinkle of our mother's eyes. Sure, okay. We'll come back and talk more of our general <laughs> thoughts on Sherman's March. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1987, we are talking about our documentary pick, Sherman's March from Ross McElwee. And as you said, Jason, like, I love this film. I was just amazed by it the first time I saw it. I was super excited to see more Ross McElwee. And I think even if the excitement of the novelty of his style has worn off a bit, as I've seen more of his stuff and watching this movie a second time, it's still just, it's so fascinating. And you, you think, again, like, how would this be something that you would want to watch for two and a half hours? And yet, I, to me, like it does feel a little long. Maybe this time I felt it a little more. But at the same time, like, what would you want to cut? Every new bit is like so entertaining and so enjoyable. And I would have been happy probably to watch him meet more women and mess it up. He's got a really dry sense of humor and he's self-deprecating, but it's not like overt, right? It's all reactions to what's going on. And um, his takedowns uh, of himself and of the South are all good. Like, And he does seem to get a real openness with the people that he's talking to, which I know is obviously what you want as a documentarian. But I didn't mind the length at all. Like I said, like, dude, I watched all 25 of those hours. Probably not that much, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I don't know. He he is kind of like this captivating, mesmerizing, like real under the surface. Like he's not flashy. He's not loud. Right. But you're like, what? I just want to keep watching whatever you're doing, at least in this one. Right. Yeah. And I think in his better films, it, it is that way. I mean, even I was kind of complaining in time about Time Indefinite, where it's like, 
it is just about him and there's no other structure to it. But I was still fascinated. That's a great film. I would recommend it if you've watched this one and want to see where kind of he goes next. Um, that movie is fascinating. And Josh, they're all so available for us right now. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's great. Like I said, it was so hard Like in that era when I first watched this movie and Bright Leaves, which had been released in theaters at the time, but none of these were really available. And now uh, Canopy has like an entire, like the films of Ross McElwee collection, including those early shorts, like the backyard that you watched and a whole bunch of stuff. So yeah, it's fantastic. I'd like to watch more. He does at one point in this movie, go see uh, his old high school teacher who he's good friends with Charlene. And uh, she's a fun character, you know, um, and trying to set him up with all these Southern bells, shall we say. And um, I know he did a documentary about her and she is a, a recurring character in many of these films. Yeah, she shows up and I mean, she's definitely in Time Indefinite and I think in other films. And he did make a whole like almost feature length movie, I think, about her before uh, before right. this. And she, she was in uh, Six O'Clock News also. Right. Yeah. And I think she may be in some of the those later ones that I've seen, but I don't I don't know if she was in photographic memory. Uh, here's a, I have a question. Though. Yes. Which of the women would you want to date of his uh, of his potential matches? I you know, I don't know. I think part of what is charming to me about this film is that uh, these women all seem kind of nutso. And like, <laughs> he, he seems like very down to earth. And when he's like, I was so captivated with her. I, I, I kept thinking like, really? You were? Why, why is that? And well, I, yeah, I don't know if I could name them all. There was the woman I referenced earlier who was a budding actress uh, who had an absolutely insane idea for a screenplay. Oh yeah. Pat. Uh, yeah. There was Claudia, who was a single mom, and she seemed and an interior decorator who seemed somewhat normal until she went to like the survivalist camp in the mountains, which we should definitely talk yeah. more about, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, there was the Mormon Southern uh, folk singer, I guess you would call her. Yeah. Um, who again had like an entire like. Um, uh, bomb shelter set up with her mom. Right? She did. And then she was showing him like their, their, their jugs of water that they had and all this stuff and, and boxes of like ready to eat food and everything. There was a linguist, uh, student who lived on an Island, um, with one other person and just spent her days, I guess, studying linguistics. Um, and, um, going back to the land. I don't really know what you would say. And that's who he was involved with for a couple of months. And then there was a lounge singer, a uh, rock and roll lounge singer. That would probably be the one I would relate most to. Right. Yeah. I mean, I felt like other than the living off the land bit that uh, Winnie the linguist seemed the most kind of like a person I could talk to perhaps. Is that because she was so sexually open, Josh, and you're all about that? Mm, yeah, no, that's probably not the reason, but um, that was good for, for old Ross there, except when he went back to the island when she was now involved with the one other person there. Right. Well, what did you expect, man? They were together and then um, he left for two months, which I think dragged out to longer. And then he came back and they were together. But what I loved about that is like, he's got the camera on her. And he's like, why did you leave me? You know, <laughs> she's like, Ross, do we have to talk about this? Well, why did you leave me for Michael? And it's like, well, he's the only other person on the island. People get lonely. I can see when this happens. But um, it seemed like we had a lot of situations like that. But it seemed like Claudia was into him. And 
he could have stayed with her and he chose to continue on uh, Sherman's route. And um, so there were there were opportunities for him. Right. Right. I mean, I do appreciate that he as as uncomfortable as I'm sure it would have actually been to for him to like return to that island with with the linguist and her now boyfriend as the only other people there. He doesn't seem reluctant to kind of place himself in these situations where these women are in other relationships. And on the one hand, maybe he's insecure, but on the other hand, he's actually quite secure because he's like happy to meet their boyfriends. Um, We have the, I think one that you didn't mention was her name, Karen, toward the end, who's like a woman he's known for most of his life and who's a lawyer and she's got a boyfriend. And one of the late, like final things in this film is him hanging out with her boyfriend and his friends for several days where they do some sort of weird business where they pick up plastic animal sculptures. Large, there. large plastic animal figures. I, guess. I didn't really understand what was happening with that, but wow. I mean, there doesn't seem to be any animosity between him and this guy. And it's, it's just all very open. Right. It seemed like they had a romantic past and she's like, you know, I'm in love with you, but I'm really in love with my boyfriend, you know, who wasn't my boyfriend again until yesterday, you know? Um, so his timing is interesting on these things. You also have uh, not a romantic interest, but his sister and like his old teacher, people trying to set him up on these dates. And, and they're good characters, too. The sister's talking about how she got a fanny tuck. You know, yes, and uh, and what would constitute the necessities of if you can hold a pencil uh, below your butt cheek in your thigh, right? Then you might need a fanny tuck. And she's like, I can hold a, a tube of crest in there. <laughs> so that was pretty funny. I thought the whole the whole familial element just made me want to see more of, of them. Um, yeah, it was just good. Yeah, yeah, they're, those are very entertaining people to watch. His sister and. Uh, Charlene, of course, as you said, I mean, she's a very uh, vivacious character and is very fixated. And it's funny, too, because, you know, you she's obviously someone who's known him for a long time. And that's how he presents her, even if you haven't seen the the other films with her. And she keeps telling him, oh, I found you the perfect woman. And clearly these women are not perfect for him at all. I don't remember who the first woman, uh, or no, the first woman was the singer, yeah, was the, uh, the Mormon the singer. Folk singer. Yeah. And then who was the second woman? That I think he just cetera. briefly describes her and she also sounds completely wrong for him. And then he essentially says, like, I ran away before I had to meet her. But she's funny because she's an old teacher and she's like, she's so much better than the first woman. And she puts out, she sleeps around, right. you know? <laughs> yeah, because he was complaining that the first one was Mormon. So, you know, that's a way to contact. I, I also love how she's like, uh, you know, she's just waiting for a guy. She doesn't really care about being a Mormon. Like, <laughs> that was so funny. Well, she wants she, she wants a, a guy. Oh, yeah, but she, yeah, right. You're right. But then she told him she wants a man who will bring the priesthood into into. Uh, yeah, her house sure i mean you can't really like i mean look imagine you're writing this as a fictional account and it's like we have a southern woman uh you know outside i think in south carolina they were in at this point in time right yeah, I'm, I not, so. I, I'm so, not sure where charlene lives yeah, yeah. um so a, a south carolina native mormon folk singer who's just on the prowl for uh a husband and also a survivalist Right. Yeah. A lot of survivalism. You said you wanted to talk about that compound that he goes to with the other woman who, like you said, she seems kind of normal and down to earth for a little bit. She's got her daughter who's very nice and also seems to kind of like Ross. They seem to be getting along. And then we get to a point where they're at the 
at church and they're having this kind of meeting with the preacher who's talking about the end times. And it's like, oh, this is a little dicey, but probably within the realm of what people in the South would talk about at church. And then they go to the survivalist camp and it kind of all goes off the rails. Shockingly, it's uh, mostly older white men at this camp. Mm. And they're all like, yeah, you know, what we think of the federal government is they are our enemies, right? And this is during the Reagan administration. So that was interesting. But it's like, up here, we can shoot you if we want, but we don't have to. We we don't have too many women up here. Certainly not too many good looking ones, but but we're back to the land. And it was interesting because, you know, we hear this all like I think this is a prevalent theme of society. Everyone. There's always a sect who wants to go back to the land and live the way that, uh, you know, our forefathers lived. Right. And also uh, extremely racist. Speaking of racist, I wrote down a quote from one of the women's friends who said um, that, yes, yeah, slavery, it, that shouldn't be a law. But if you want to be a slave, you should be able to be a slave. Yeah, that definitely stood out. I mean... McAwee, I I think he's not pushing back. Even the survivalists, he just kind of lets them talk and he doesn't really respond. But I think it's clear that he's allowing these people to hang themselves. Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. So um, that that was definitely something that stood out. And part of what this is about, you know, it is partly about Sherman. And and that is about the sort of legacy of the Civil War and the attitudes that that persist in the South and that do color really every aspect of life, including romance. I found it interesting, the stuff about Sherman, where, because, you know, we all studied it, but maybe don't know that much. Uh, I'm not a Civil War expert. I know, Josh, you like to reenact the battles uh, as a Southerner for some reason. I don't know why you keep doing it. Just at home by myself. (laughs) Spoiler alert, Josh, they lose every time. But um, I found it interesting that like, you know, there was there was a lot about how he didn't um, or not a lot. But the point was, hey, man, he wasn't going around just uh, slaughtering other military people. He was just, you know, hey, dude, we're going to take on this war in a different way. I'm going to burn every city that you have to the ground until you surrender. Right. I mean, it was brutal. Like he may have been on the side that we sympathize with, but the methods of warfare are are really horrific and the fact that yeah they went into these towns just where they were just civilians right the the military was elsewhere and he went to the town and burned it down and killed all sorts of civilians and it's brutal it's awful so um you know there's in that sense some justification for hatred toward him you know just like any you know wartime leader who might commit atrocities in the name of a cause that that we could argue is just yeah, uh, I don't necessarily feel like I can get into that, Josh, because it's so complicated. Like, well, on the one hand, you know, he was fighting to end slavery. And on the other hand, uh, all's fair in love and war, which is actually the same hand, right? And on the same hand, it's like war is hell. So it's like, but on the other hand, uh, he's doing a lot of the murdering of people who aren't uh, fighting against him. Right. right. And so. and I don't think McElwee is necessarily interested in diving into that deep philosophical debate in this film either. The point is simply that Sherman is a complex figure. And, and honestly, the original premise of this movie, following Sherman's route and um, 
dissecting how it affects the South to this day in 1981 is a pretty interesting concept. And I also like the quote that you had mentioned about like, it feels like it's very of the 80s because like, this is our 1987 pick. And we talked about how the 87 is like the most 80s year. This feels like it was from 1987. But, but you know, 1981 I, you know, a lot can happen in six years, but the 80s, man, what a time. Yeah, the 80s, man. No, I agree. I was sort of surprised to read that this had been shot so much earlier because it definitely does feel very much contemporary and very much like a product of the 80s in the same way as the other movies that we've talked about thus far this season do. You know, and that's another thing that McElwee is able to capture that whatever the time period is he's living in, he's fully engaged with how things are during that time period. And that's that's the case here too. Hey, Josh, you, I know, watched it a long time ago. And I think, you know, this is, there's so much, it's dense, it's long. It, I would be interested in rewatching it at some point because I bet I would just like, well, obviously you're going to forget things, but also you're probably picking up a lot of other things that maybe you didn't pick up. Yeah, I mean, I saw it long enough ago that I had forgotten most of the specific details. So I couldn't say that there was necessarily something that I picked up that I missed. Most of this was me, you know, it felt fairly new because other than my general sense of McElwee and his style and approach, I didn't remember a lot of the specific details. But yeah, there's so many great background details. And I think that's one of the things where when when Paul Adonazio is like, oh, this is like not a technically accomplished film, I think just knowing where to look, you know, is something that that McElwee is great at. I, I mentioned the scene with um, the the single mother where they're sitting at this table, like talking to the preacher and he's talking about the end times and her daughter is like eating this ice cream sandwich and McElwee is showing us the ice cream sandwich eating. And it's just such a fun, small little detail. And that whole scene, I mean, he hasn't engineered it, but he knows how to capture it. And there's like this guy in this giant Easter bunny costume in the background who kind of comes and approaches them and hands the little girl candy just as they're talking about the rapture. And it's just perfectly structured to be so funny and so real at the same time. Uh, yeah, I mean, the humor is one of the best things of this movie. And it's like none of it is forced. It's all just so uh, natural and uh, so quirky. So weird. And that's like one of the things that just works so well and is hard to replicate. Right. And I mean, I think some of it is just him finding something in the moment and realizing like this is something to capture because it will be entertaining. Like there is a lot of wit in his voiceover that, of course, you know, he's planned out and written and all of that. But those little moments, too, I think can be really uh, entertaining and, you know, to have the eye for it and realize this is a moment and here's how to frame this moment. That'll be amusing. And it'll also be a commentary on something as well is really impressive. And of course we have to talk about the connective tissue to our 1977 season where we did Smokey and the Bandit. And here there's a character who looks so much like Burt Reynolds that he waits outside of a hotel room for basically 16 hours, a hotel lobby, I should say. Um, to try to get to Burt Reynolds during the filming of Cannonball Run to see if he could be his stunt double. But baby, you know how I'll need him, Randy. You know how I'll need him. Yeah, and, and Burt Reynolds himself, the real Burt Reynolds, does show up in this film as well. And that's another sort of through line here is the search for Burt Reynolds because Pam, the actress, or Pat rather, the actress character, 
is weirdly fixated on the idea that she's going to like fall in love with and with Burt Reynolds and he'll fall in love with her. And uh, so you feel like maybe McAwee has some kind of like jealousy complex over Burt Reynolds in a way. He's not the only man, but I uh, enjoyed the uh, shots of like Burt Reynolds adoring fans, which are all women, uh, all Southern women. And like, you know, there's one, a uh, woman, a black woman with her baby. And she's like, Burt Reynolds, kiss my baby. You know, wake up, baby. The baby's like sleeping. And she keeps trying to wake it just to tell her that Burt Reynolds kissed the baby. You know? I did love that because it's like, what is the baby going to do when, when the baby wakes up? It's not going to understand about Burt Reynolds. You're just going to make the baby cry. But yeah, that's great. And I feel like that's also a great payoff that he keeps coming back to, you know, we talk, he talks to Pat about how she wants to fall in love with Burt Reynolds and the idea that he's in the area filming Cannonball Run. And then we get the Burt Reynolds lookalike guy. And then toward the very end of the film is when he finally actually encounters Burt Reynolds on the set there and uh, is turned away and then is not allowed to interview Burt Reynolds or film with him. And, you know, it's another great running joke that pays off. Josh, I was wondering, because I couldn't figure this out, in the first hour of the movie, because I marked this down, all every time he's on camera, he's in shadows or in long shots, and you never really see him. Um, you know, maybe you see him holding the camera, but it's always in long shots and it's obscured. And then by the hour two, like now he's on camera. I wonder I wonder if that was something he I don't even know how he could have done that purposely because he's editing, you know, 25 hours worth of footage. But uh, it was interesting to me that like, as you got to know him better, you got to see him more. That is interesting. I hadn't noticed that. I mean, the only thing I can think of is that um, it's possible that because I mean, this is chronological, this is, you know, the footage that he shot over a period of months. And it's possible that maybe at the beginning of the shoot, he was a bit more concerned with let's try to make this kind of the, the actual Sherman documentary and less about me and wasn't, was trying not to appear on camera. And maybe as time went on and he shifted his idea of what the film would be about, he was more willing to appear on camera himself, but I really don't know. Yeah. And uh, Dave, I just want to say, because I know you love adaptation, this feels like a, a complete like influence on that too. I think you're right. Yeah. Like I said, any, anything meta is usually my thing. And uh, yeah, th this movie was so good. And I, I know like in my letterbox review, I complain about the length, but like this, that's like the only thing I didn't like about the movie. And like, I wouldn't even say didn't like, like it's still, it's so great. And it, it, I just love spending time with this character. He's just so interesting. Yeah. Are there any other uh, particular things you liked about it, Dave? I mean, you guys covered it all. I think like, you know, the humor of it, like just the real dry humor of this guy who's kind of, is kind of schmucky. I think that Woody Allen comparison is really good. Like, you know, it's just kind of schmucky, kind of unlucky in love, kind of doesn't even really know what he wants. And that filters right through to making a movie that ends up about something other than what he set out for. You can see like being in an audience watching this and like 30% of the people walking out. Oh, of sure. Like, what is this crap, right? Yeah. Right. But this is also the kind of movie where the 70% of the people who stay will absolutely love it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. 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 So should we, uh, should we rate this out of uh, five um, women who reject Ross McElwee? <laughs> sure. Even though he did some rejection. Right. No, too. we got to give him his due. You're right. Yeah. Um, I gave it three and a half, which as you know, that's a sweet spot for me. Those are usually the ones that like I like to watch over and again and just make me feel good. And uh, that's where it is. Five, 
women who rejected slash unrejected were rejected. Three and a half of those. All right. I give it four. I just, I really think this movie is great and I, I quite enjoyed it again this time. And I think also just as like a landmark in the development of documentary, this film is just, it's so important. So, but also really entertaining. So for and a timepiece of the of the age. Absolutely. All of those things, you know, people should absolutely check this out. Uh, Dave, how would you rate it? Uh, I'm also going with four. And we've talked about how great of a year 87 is. I think this might be one of like the big surprises of this season. Yeah, I hope. I don't know how many people who are listening have seen or heard of this movie, but I hope if you haven't, you will watch it. It is easily available on Canopy. And it's absolutely worth your uh, two and a half hours. Yeah, and you can break it up if you want. I mean, you can stop at any point and restart at any point, and it's not going to really affect the momentum as you're watching. That is true. So uh, we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of Sherman's March. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1987, we are talking about our documentary pick, Ross McElwee's Sherman's March. And uh, as far as legacy goes, we've been talking about some of McElwee's other films. Um, Thanks, I'm sure, at least in part to the success of this film, he was able to continue making movies basically about himself and almost all of his feature films post Sherman's March are really about him either solely or tangentially. Um, Like I said, I saw time indefinite, which is his follow-up film that is solely just about him. And is a lot of, a lot about kind of uh, unpleasant changes in his life and his family's life uh, deaths and things like that. Although it also then leads into him getting married and having his first child. Um, and I loved that. I really did. Even though it's it's downbeat, it's maybe not quite as humorous as this. It, it was really emotionally engaging. Um, and Jason, you watched Six O'Clock News, which was the next film. And like you said, that was maybe a little disappointing. Yeah, um, I think, again, I mean, you know, you see you see the wife, you see the kid, but the lack of focus or the lack of kind of threading his ability to involve himself in it, like really took away from it. I, I was just like, okay, you know, I, I get it. Um, you know, there was a hurricane here or this guy got trapped in an earthquake. And this is, these are all sad stories, but like I wanted, I wanted more um, of the McElweeness in it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's disappointing. Cause that's the only like major feature of his that I haven't seen. And I was hoping to maybe watch that too before this. And I didn't have a chance um, I watched Time Indefinite instead, but I'm still curious to see it. Um, like I said, Bright Leaves, I thought was really fantastic. And one of the things I looked up what I like a little blog thing that I'd written about Bright Leaves. And and I love that, you know, by that point, he's made multiple films and you've kind of gotten to know him. And all these films are just like sort of checking in with him in a way. And the first line in Bright Leaves, the first thing you hear him say is, so I had this dream. And where you're just like, you're just like coming in in the middle of a conversation and starting back up with him. And I kind of love that. Nice. Yeah. I think, um, I think that happened in one of the movies I watched too. Yeah. Uh, or he, or, you know, he taught in backyard, he just kind of tells like a story of like, this is a conversation that my dad and I had when I told him I wanted to be a filmmaker. Right. And it's kind of similar, but, um, you know, Josh, I think he still teaches at Harvard. So he's what we would call a quote unquote middle class filmmaker, right? Like he's figured out a way to 
uh, pursue his passion, but also make money with it. Um, and not everyone, you know, is going to be a rich guy making movies, Josh. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's taught at Harvard since since this film, you know, for the past 40 plus years or whatever, and is continuing to do that. You know, we were talking about uh, before this, you know, some of the the ways that his personal life has gone. And of course, since his movies are all about that, I mean, you see him get married in time indefinite, you see his son get born. And then uh, there's a lot with his son, I guess, in six o'clock news, and especially in photographic memory, which is all about him taking a trip to Europe with his son, who's now in his early 20s, and they have this kind of strained relationship. And so it was a bit, you know, sad to read, not only is he divorced from uh, Marilyn Levine, his first wife, who was also a filmmaking collaborator. She's credited on Sherman's March. Um, his son, Adrian, died at the, the age of 27 after photographic memory was released. And, and I do wonder a bit if, if that in particular is one of the reasons why he hasn't made another film since that. Right. Um, I know what we don't know what happened, but you think it might have been a suicide because of, you know, depression or mental illness. Or right. I mean, I don't want to speculate about someone's death per se. And I, you know, reports about it. He wasn't a famous person. So reports are just kind of obituaries that the family has, has put out. But given his young age and the, the issues that he clearly had that you can see in photographic memory, that seems like it probably was the case. And, and it's just a, a really heavy tragedy that maybe you wouldn't blame McAwee for not wanting to put that in a film. I I agree with you. And I mean, these are themes that he's he deals with in all of his movies, though, like familial relationships, uh, death, depression, all those things are things that he deals with. I do hope he makes another movie. So. Yeah, I do, too. And some of the like kind of interviews and coverage around the time of photographic memory mentioned that he was working on something else. So that may or may not happen. He is now married to another filmmaker, uh, Hyun Kyung Kim, and is a producer on a film that she's working on called Defectors which looks like it's about uh, North Korean defectors to South Korea. So I don't know if that's personal in any way for her. I don't really know anything about her, but that is at least something that he has an involvement in that will presumably be released. Charlene, uh, the uh, joyous teacher of his, uh, died in 2018 at age 86. So she had a good long life and um, she was, she's always fun to watch on screen. She is. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. You know, she's so vibrant and in time indefinite, she tells this horrible story about the death of her second husband who yeah. uh, they were estranged and they were getting divorced and she was living in this house that they had renovated together. And uh, that was, you know, kind of a symbol of their relationship that had gone wrong or whatever. And when she was out of town, he went to the house, set it on fire and sat in the house and killed himself by setting their house on fire. Yikes. Yeah. I didn't I know that the husband died in a fire, but I didn't know that's what happened. Yeah, it's it's horrific. And it's crazy because she tells this story and it's obviously this awful tragedy. It's a huge trauma, but she still has that same vibrance in that film. Yeah, she's just um, one of those people who uh, emanates light, I'd say. Yes, absolutely. Um so I was trying to find, you know, I, I don't know if you looked up any of this stuff, but you know, info about some of these people, because a lot of these women, they have these big ambitions and it's like, where did it go? So, oh, I love that you did this. So See, this is why he's a better reporter than me. <laughs> and why I have to write about myself all the time. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get to the legacy of Jason shortly. But, um, <laughs> so uh, Pat, Patricia Rendleman, who was the aspiring actress who wanted to fall in love with Burt Reynolds, 
has one credit on IMDb as an actress. She was in the 1985 miniseries The Long Hot Summer, which stars Don Johnson mm. and Sybil Shepard. I don't know if she, she probably doesn't have a very big role, but she is in it. Um, she seems to have shifted her ambitions from acting to art and actually become a semi-successful artist, it looks like. I found uh, a page for a gallery where she had a, a show, a New York City art gallery, where she had a show in 2005. And it looks like she still works on her art. And I love this from the, this is from the description of her art show in 2005. It said, Pat has abandoned perspective and follows the lineage of alpha art. Mm. I don't know what that I mean, means. Art is a great field to be in uh, if you don't want to wear underwear. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. so true. Acting probably also a good, any, any creative field is good for people not wearing underwear, right? Podcasting, I mean, you don't have to wear underwear on a podcast. I'm not wearing any wear under the, uh, I'm no pants on at all. Good, good to know. Good to know. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Winnie, Winnie Wood, the woman that we mentioned, the linguist, the linguist, yeah, yeah. who lived on the island. She uh, is a professor at Wellesley College, which is a, quite a prestigious college, has been there for many, many years. She teaches writing and she also teaches film studies, including documentaries. So, I wonder if she shows her own film in her classes. Did she end up with Michael? That I do not know. It was not in her academic bio on the Wellesley website. So I mean, Wellesley's in Massachusetts, so maybe they're still in touch. It could be. Because he lives in Boston still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is possible. Joy Perrin, Joyous Perrin, the uh, lounge singer slash musician, is still a working musician. She has a, a website where she is available for hire as a, quote, freelance bassist. And... You can also uh, download for free her 1999 album, Cruisin' for a Bluesin', which mm. I did listen to one song from Cruisin' for a Bluesin'. It was not bad. She's got a good, really good voice. I, I would be happy to watch her perform in a lounge. Yeah, yeah. And, and she, I mean, that, al- that album was from, I mean, it's a while ago now, but certainly, you know, like almost 20 years after she appeared in this film and she, you know, her voice still sounded good and, you know, good for her for still... Uh, playing music and enjoying herself. And maybe, you know, if she's been able to make a living at it, that's, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, that's all I got with the, with the ladies. I couldn't find, those were the ones because they have like artistic careers. There was something online. I, I don't know what happened to the weird survivalists. She's, uh, up in the woods somewhere. Probably not good Just, things. <laughs> yeah. She's, uh, she's, uh, was on the, at the Capitol on January 6th, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that is an accurate, uh, description i imagine yes yes indeed uh so the other horrific thing i discovered uh was apparently in 2008 uh steve carr the director of such films as daddy daycare and paul blart mall cop uh bought the remake rights to sherman's march and was going to make a film uh according to the hollywood reporter it said he intends to turn sherman's march into a smaller quirky comedy keeping the original's tone, but producing something that will feel akin to Sideways or Little Miss Sunshine. I mean, you know, McElwee in Six O'Clock News is uh, kind of flirting with the idea of directing a uh, fictional film. So it just uh, never went that way for him. Yeah. Do you want to see the Sherman's March remake from the director of Paul Blart Mall Cop? I'll give you a no on that one. But... uh, Instead, I'll give you a quote from Ross about this film. 
I guess what my conversations have that conventional interviews don't is a serendipitous quality and emotional charge that has something to do with the personal connection between the subject and the filmmaker. I never came with a list of questions. I think that really, you know, again, we talked about like how badly this could have gone, but he, he did the damn thing, as they say. He did. He did. And I mean, I think there's, you know, uh, so much influence from this and, and other filmmakers who work this way. You met, we mentioned how to with John Wilson, which I haven't seen either, but Dave, you know, again, you're a big fan. And does that have like a structure? Is that the similar thing where he, there's a subject, but he kind of digresses from it? Yeah. Every episode is like that. Like, for example, I, I think there was an episode where he ended up at some survivalist camp, but like initially he was like trying to find out how to find a public bathroom or something. Like, you know, it's like, it's so random and it's so great. I mean, you know, if you're going to be in the woods, that's a, that's a, a large area of yeah. public bathrooms. <laughs> sure. So true. Um, a couple of movies that I like that are sort of similar to this, uh, Tarnation by Jonathan Cowett and uh, My Architect by Nathaniel Kahn. I think both around from around the time that Bright Leaves came out and then maybe there was sort of a mini trend of these things going on. And I haven't seen those in a while, but I really love both of those when they first came out. And I think this really connects actually to another movie that we talked about on, on Awesome Movie Year, which is Sarah Polly's uh, Stories We Tell. All right, I'll give you that, Josh. Thank you. Are there any other similar things in this genre or subgenre that you like, Jason? I didn't think about that. I'd have to do a little research. Ask me again when when we do the epilogue because it's so specific. I really have to like dig into that. All right, I will ask you, and you can answer in your Tar Heel Woody Allen impression. <laughs> That's really what we need. <laughs> what about that one documentary, Josh, that we both like, The Ringmaster? That kind of goes in that like weird like direction where it ends up being about something altogether. You know? The onion ring guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's that was fun. That's more like it's less about the the filmmaker himself and more about like the the process or the subject. But yeah, that is that's one that kind of is just on the borderline between this is fascinating and this is annoying. Right. <laughs> yeah. Sure. <laughs> so uh, anything else you want to mention on the legacy of this film, Jason? Nope. I, uh, I'm happy that uh, we have a good recommendation to give everyone. I am too. And I really hope people take that recommendation because this is, this is one of those movies that I would always recommend, you know, if people were looking into different kinds of documentaries or whatever, I was definitely like an advocate for this movie for a long time. So that is Sherman's March. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can uh, pick us up on social media and online. Yeah, where we talk about ourselves, much like Ross does here. Yes. Uh, I'm at Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy on all the socials. Eat This Comedy is an Instagram and a website. An Instagram, Josh. It's an Instagram. Uh, and of course, we are at awesomemovieyear.com. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. We got to fix that Instagram still. We do. We're getting there. <laughs> we'll get to it eventually. And maybe some other social media things too. It's a lot of effort, really. Um, you can find some old stuff from me, including a little blurbs about Ross McElwee's films at joshbellhateseverything.com. Uh, more recent stuff at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook, at Signal Bleed on Twitter, and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Jason, what's in our next episode? Josh, it's your pick. Why don't you tell us? It is. This could have been my pick. I This was, you know, so exciting to me to talk about this film, but I'm also excited to talk about Moonstruck, which is a, a more well-known film than Sherman's March, but also quirky and also brilliant. So tune in next time for Moonstruck. 
And thanks for listening. And Josh, here's a little preview. I lost my hand. <laughs> Tune in next time for impressions on Moonstruck. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.